I want to start out this morning by talking about experience and explanation. Experience and explanation. Oftentimes in life, we have experiences and we want an explanation for them, especially kids. This is especially with kids. Anyone who has been around a three-year-old for any length of time, tell me the one word that most of their sentences begin with. You, you same three year, you're on the same three-year-old that I am. Yeah. Why, right? Why? Why is this? Why is the sky blue? Why is the sun yellow? Why this? Why that? Why do I have to do this? Why does this person, why does that person look like that? Why does that person look, you hope they don't say that out in public. But these are kids, right? They're like, why that? You know, they're pointing, they're like, don't point, you know? Uh, but kids are always asking questions why. You know, as they get older, they continue with the questions. Tell me if you got this one, if you had kids in your home. Why are you driving 70 when the speed limit's 55? Anybody get that one? Anyone have to explain that one to your kids? Yeah. And come up with a good answer? Let me know. Um, but you got the why questions, right? And then, and then it keeps going on because actually parents have them too, right? Because we ask the why questions too. We have different why questions. You know, why is your face blue? Why, you know, why is there marker all over you? Why did you stick the pee up your nose? Why did you stick the pee in your ear? These are just questions we ask, right? We're constantly asking, why did you eat the popcorn off the floor? Um, all good questions that we don't always get good answers to. But when we experience something, we want an explanation for it. I want to talk to you this morning about a question about something that someone experienced that he wanted an explanation for. His name is Charles Taylor. And he's actually a philosopher at uh, McGill University in Canada. And about 10 years ago, he wrote a book. And the book is called Our Secular Age. Anybody read it? I didn't expect anyone. It's about 900 pages. It's about this thick. We're not going to go into the book today. <laughs> but he starts off with a really interesting question that I want us to consider this morning. Here's the question he asks. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. Let me paraphrase. I would paraphrase this way. Why is it that 500 years ago it was nearly unthinkable for someone to not believe in God, and now it's becoming increasingly unreasonable to people for someone to believe in God. I'm guessing I'm not the only one that when you hear that question, you feel that tension in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your school, that you feel a tension there that if you are someone who believes in God, that there are others around you who think that strange. If that's not the case, then why not just talk openly about it and everything? Uh, why do you feel that sometimes tension? I think we all feel it at times. That we live in a world that sometimes think it's unreasonable to believe in God. Whereas, say 500 years ago, I didn't live there, you didn't either. But from everything I read and understand and see, it would have been unreasonable for someone. You don't believe in God? How do you explain these things that you experience. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I'm not going to go into the 900 pages that uh, 
that Charles Taylor gives to explain that. You're welcome to read those on your own. But let me suggest, let me bring us, and I'm going to come to a passage of scripture, at least one reason why I think that happens and why I think that's happened in our world. And one of the reasons is I think we all throughout history, throughout human history, there's been experiences that we've had to explain and at times we had to know how to explain them. So for example, um, early on human history, it rains, but then it doesn't rain. And maybe it goes a long period of time not raining. And we don't know. I mean, think about it. Before you had weather.com, before you could click on your phone, before you could watch on your TV, before even a farmer's almanac, you had no idea what the weather was going to be the next day. And so people said it rains, and I don't know why it rains, and I don't know why it doesn't rain. It's probably God. Must be God when it rains. And then with other things come along, and, and there's, there's, say, uh, you know, a thunder and lightning storm. And we say, I don't understand where this thunder and this lightning storm comes. Maybe God is mad or upset. And so you get these things that are going on in the heavenlies. Things we don't understand. You experience them, but don't know how to explain them. Uh, somebody gets sick, or a whole lot of people get sick, and we don't know why, because somebody else doesn't get sick. And there wasn't an explanation. Think about it before you understood all that you understand about medicine and about disease and about bacteria and microbacteria and all that. We didn't know. So we just thought, well, it must be God. And we had these many gaps that we don't know where it comes from and we don't know what they are. So we fill them in. But here's what happens as time goes on and as history's gone on, and I think this is what's happened, that at times, then we have some different things that go on. And I've got, let me see if I got my, I got my tools here, and thank you, whoever cleaned them in between services. Um, what happens is, along comes our, I got my bucket of knowledge. And we have our bucket of knowledge that comes into play over time. And what happens is you get... Hold on, I've got my tools here. There we go. You got your bucket of knowledge in here, and I'll grab me some knowledge. And we decide over time, we learn some things, right? We learn that over time, that when it rains, there is an evaporation cycle. And water comes from the earth, and it evaporates, and it goes up, and then it comes down and waters the earth. And we decide, well, we have that figured out. So we don't have, we don't, we don't, we don't have that. We've kind of got that figured out. That's not God. That's the, we can make that, smooth that over and take care of that. And we understand. Now what happens there, we didn't used to understand. And then, you know, we look at thunder and lightning and we didn't know where that came from. But now we understand, you know, the thunder is simply the sound of the lightning breaking the sound barrier. And lightning is simply an electrical charge built up in the atmosphere that needs to find a ground. And it eventually finds that. And it's not, you know, we understand where that's coming from. And so we don't need God for that. We understand. We explain it. And sickness and disease, well, you know, we, we understand bacteria. We understand viruses. Uh, we understand where all that comes from. And my daughter last week was diagnosed with, you know, strep throat. And she was feeling awful. And then three doses of antibiotics. And she was like a new girl. We have these things somewhat figured out. And so, where we used to have God clearly, our knowledge, 
has replaced it and we smooth it over. And we get to the point, I think, where we start to think, well, maybe we don't need God. Maybe we've got, if we get a big enough bucket of knowledge, you know, we've solved so many, we've figured out so many of these other things, maybe, maybe we don't need God. Maybe there is no God. Or maybe we get to the point where we start saying, maybe we are God. Maybe we are the highest form of life there. I've used this in the past, but I think one of the more graphic illustrations of this or or illustrations of this that I've liked in the past is um, uh, Harvard University, when it was founded, its crest was a little different than it looks now. Uh, That crest on the left is the original 17th century crest for Harvard uh, that that was there, that was made. The words on the Uh, outskirts of it, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, translate to truth for Christ and the church. Those words surely aren't there anymore, but that's not even the most interesting thing to me. The most interesting thing to me is the books, three books on both of them, except on the original crest, the third book, you can tell you're looking at the binder. The third book is open away from you. Two books are open. One is open but turned away from us. And the reason is it symbolizes the limits of our reason and the needs for God's revelation. But those that will be graduating from Harvard in a couple weeks and they get their, uh, their diplomas and their degrees, they'll be stamped with the crest of the university. But it will be that one on the right that somewhere along in history all three books were opened and turned the other way, signifying that there is no hidden knowledge that God would have or hide, that we, given enough time, can know everything. And this idea, I think, permeating the fact that, look, if we, knowledge is going to replace everything that we once thought was God. You have to be careful. You know, this world that we live in constantly is telling us that we don't need God. And I think many times making you, if you're not careful, making us think we are gods. I mean, think about all the things we've been able to solve. I mean, we can make food that can feed the whole planet. We may have distribution problems, but there's enough food to feed everybody. We, you can, I can eat strawberries in January and apples in April. I think about the world that we live in that was not that way, not that long ago. I can be in my house and with a few clicks of this, have somebody else prepare food for me and bring it to my door. Do you know, like that was only like kings and royalty in past days. I can, with the same few clicks of this device, stand at a point on the earth and have transportation brought right to me. They come right to me and pick me up and take me where I want to go. How do we not think that we are gods? I can speak to the air and say, Alexa, order toilet paper. (laughs) And it shows up the next day at my house. Or if you live close enough to an Amazon distribution center, it'll show up in a couple hours. 
We live in a day and age where it's hard not to think that our knowledge is going to solve most of our issues and that what need do we have of God? Well, I would argue, and what I want to present to you this morning is I think that even though some of these things we've been able to cover up and take care of and understand, although I would argue all we've done is push the question back a little bit more, but we'll get there, uh, but understand a little bit more, there are some things that I think our knowledge has either not answered or given us a quite unsatisfactory answer. Three questions that I think might fall into that category. They are illustrated by a painting by uh, Paul Gauguin that is a 19th century French painter. It actually hangs in the MFA in Boston. And the title of the painting is actually three questions that he raises that are written in the upper left-hand portion of his painting. And these are the... uh, questions that Gauguin raises. And it is, where do we come from? Is the first question he asks. Second question he asks is, what are we? And the third question he asks is, where are we going? Three questions that uh, were raised by Gauguin in the 19th century that I don't think we've answered even to this day or even come up with satisfactory answers. These are gaps that our knowledge and we constantly want to know the answers to. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? much as our bucket of knowledge has taken us, these questions still plague us, I think, at times. It's a passage in Scripture that I want us to look at this morning that I believe addresses this experience explanation phenomenon as well as these three questions. It's found in Acts chapter 17, and if you have a Bible and want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there and follow along, or if you don't have a Bible, you can pull one out of one of the chair racks in front of you or behind you and turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at this. Acts chapter 17 is the account of a man named Paul who was living in the first century right after Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, and he was a church planter. And God had sent him all over the Roman Empire to plant churches. And at one point, he ends up in the city of Athens, Greece. He wasn't really on his itinerary, per se. He had kind of been kicked out and driven out of the last city he was in. And he told his friends, I'll wait for you in Athens. Meet me there. And so he goes to Athens, but Paul being Paul, can't help but get up and preach. And he does. And he preaches a sermon that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And it says this, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is the place in Athens people would come to discuss ideas, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
I think this is Paul very much on this explanation and experience. Look, you recognize that there are some things in your world that you don't have an answer for, that you don't know. I'm here to proclaim the answers to those things that you don't know. And he actually, very early on, addresses that first question. Where do we come from? So let's continue on. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, you're wondering where you come from is an easy answer. You come from God. There's a God who lives who created you. You're wondering where you come from. God has given you life and given you breath. Now this isn't the answer that many in our world and many in our society would have us believe or that many believe. Many believe the explanation for today is that we did not come from anywhere in particular. We're simply a lucky bunch of seemingly conscious matter that's a result of enough time and chance and elements coming together and here we are. And Paul says, the Bible says, that's not where you come from. Where you come from is that God has created you or you are a result of a God who made you. God gave breath and everything that you have. You might say, well, that was a good explanation before, you know, we came along with all our knowledge and understanding of nature. And I think I'd push back on that a little and say, what knowledge have we gained that would refute this and saying, how hard is it to say we came from nothing? That's not an answer. It's a non-answer to say we, we just came from nothing, even though we know that all things must come from something and all things must be, have some starting point that somehow life came from non-life. And we say that and we, the answer is if you come, many would say, well, you come from nothing, which is, at least to me, maybe not to you, somewhat of an unsatisfying answer. Paul says, no, you're from God. But what are we? What are we? Paul continues on. What are we here for? We might ask the question that way. And he says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Where do we come from? You come from God. What are we? Paul says, you are for God. You are for God. You're God's offspring. You're God's uh, offspring. And you are here to seek God. And that's where you were created. You are here to be with God. The God who has created you. We are here for God. 
Many would say, what are we? We would say, well, there's something of value within us. I think we all feel that, that there is something of value in us. But if you came from nothing, if it started by accident, if you're here by chance, you can't then say that there is some value that is related to it and infused in it afterwards. How can you? And Paul says, you know there's something in you that says you're created for something else, something more. And Paul says, that's something that you don't know about, that unknown thing that lives within you, is God. Because he not only created you, he created you for himself. And finally, that last question, where are we going? Paul answers as he continues to go on in this verse. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Where are we going? Paul says in this passage very clearly that all of us will at one day meet our maker, meet our creator, stand before God. And he calls them to repent and get in right relationship with God. Where are we going? One philosopher, Simon Blackburn, not a Christian, I don't think, uh, but he sums up what science teaches about where we're going and where things are heading. And he sums it up in kind of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth reading this morning. Here's what he said. Science teaches that the cosmos is some 15 billion years old, almost unimaginably huge, and governed by natural laws that will compel its extinction in some billions more years. Although long before that, the earth and the solar system will have been destroyed by the heat death of the sun. Human beings occupy an infinitesimally small fraction of space and time on the edge of one galaxy among 100,000 million or so galaxies. We evolved only because of a number of cosmic accidents, including the extinction of the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago. Nature shows us no particular favors. We get parasites and diseases and we die. We are not all that nice to each other. True, we are moderately clever, but our efforts to use our intelligence to make things better for ourselves quite often backfire. And they may do so spectacularly in the near future from some combination of man-made military, environmental, or genetic disasters. That, Simon Blackburn says, more or less is the scientific picture of the world. Encompassing this, that where we come from nothing and we're really going nowhere, that at the end of it, all that'll be left is some space dust floating around that used to be you, me, and all that happened on this small planet, in this galaxy, and in this solar system. Another uh, physicist and atheist, Steven Weinberg, says this, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. This lostness that where are we going? Where are we going? 
And it's, it's got going anywhere and there's, some, there's a lostness, there's a dismalness, there's a malaise that comes about that. In your view, you may say, well, then in fact science has found an answer. You just don't like it. You might make that argument. And I would say, but isn't there something within you that says that's not a satisfying answer, that this can't be all there is? We have trouble accepting this. We all want to go on and live forever. That's why Ponce de Leon searched for the fountain of youth. That's why celebrities today are freezing their heads when they die. People want to find a way to live forever because there's something within you that says this isn't it. There's more. There's more you were created for. I want to live on for eternity. That's not because you're just enjoying this world. I believe that's because what the Bible says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men, that you were created to live forever, that you were created for more than just these 50, 60, or 70 years that we get to live. Paul says at the end of this passage, you go back to that previous slide, guys. At the end of this passage, he says that all these things, and, he, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what Paul says. The answer to these questions, where do we come from? You come from God. What are we? You are for God. Where are we going? We are created forever, and we will all meet God All of this, if you want to believe it, if you are going to believe it, all of it rests on the resurrection. He says that's what it rests on. He says that's the only reason you should believe it. Because God has made assurance of it based on this man that he raised from the dead. Based on this assurance. He has given us this assurance to all by raising him from the dead the dead. Now you may say, well, I don't believe the resurrection. I don't believe that he was raised from the dead. I certainly understand that there's probably many here that might say that in a room like this, and that's fine. God has given us the reason and the ability to choose that, but I would just leave you with this. Then you also have an experience that requires an explanation. And, and that's fine. But you also have an experience that then requires an explanation. And that experience is what Christians remember on this day as the resurrection. That experience is that the tomb, in fact, most scholars, almost all scholars across the board, Christian, non-Christian, religious, non-religious, those who look at the historical and archaeological evidence would say the tomb was empty. There's not much doubting that. There's not much arguing that. It was empty. It makes no other explanation make sense. There's too much evidence. There's too much documentation. The tomb was empty. Now you can do with that what you will, but you need to come up with an explanation for that experience. You need to come up with an explanation for the experience of the eyewitnesses that lived within the same time period that said that he rose from the dead. And that could have easily been proven wrong if he had not. In fact, hundreds of people publicly stated it 
That if he had not, it could have easily been proven wrong by somebody. You have, to, you have to deal with the experience that the original eyewitnesses that all four Gospels make to the resurrection are women. Now that might not mean something in the 21st century. But it meant a lot in the first century. Because women weren't even allowed to testify anywhere and weren't considered credible witnesses. So if you are trying to convince someone of something that you want them to believe is true, you don't make women the first witnesses to it, telling everyone about it. Not in the first century, you don't. I'm just saying there's things that, there are experiences there that you have to come up with an explanation for if you're going to say that this is not true and therefore these things are not true. Finally, come up with an explanation for why followers that were fearful, that left his side, that ran away, that hid, that thought it was all over, suddenly were changed so that they were fearless and were willing to give their lives and die because they said he rose again. All of them. Not one of them, in order to save their own life, would say, no, 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 it's not. It didn't happen. We all made it up. Not one of them to spare their own life. I'm just saying there are experiences that you'd have to come up with an explanation for. A plausible alternative. Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, says this. If we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we believed the resurrection itself. It may be that the truth is there, but you just don't like the answer that God has given. William Wayne Craig says this, once one gives up the prejudices against miracles, it's hard to deny that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation of the facts. Experiences that require explanation. The experience, Paul says, the assurance is that God raised him from the dead. And because that's true and because that happened, you can trust that you come from God, that you are made for God forever. And that's the life that God calls and invites you to through Jesus Christ. That this is where God has invited you. This is the message of the resurrection. That there is hope that you are not here by an accident. I don't think you're in this room by accident today. I think God directs your steps. I don't think you are on this planet by accident. God has created you and called you and he has made you for more than you know. So what's our response? Well, this passage gives three responses that people gave and I think they're probably somewhat similar of the three responses that may be here today. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius 
Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I don't doubt that in a room like this this morning, there are all three of those responses that are here. There are some of you that you hear this message and mocking or disbelief is your response. I don't believe it. I can't believe that people in the 21st century would believe that. And if that's the case, I would just challenge you once again. All I'm saying is you have to have an explanation for the experience that if you are intellectually honest with yourself that you consider it and look at the evidence. Don't take someone else's word for it. Don't take that professor's word in college. Don't take some other person's. You go look. You decide. You come up with an explanation for the experience. Because there's too much on the line to take someone else's word for it. There's too much on the line to just ignore it. Because we're talking about the things of eternity. If I'm right, there's an eternity on the line for you and for me, with or without God, in heaven or hell. That's what's on the line if I'm right. If you're right, well, there's not much for you to lose, is there? Because you already believe that you're coming from nothing and going to nothing. I'm just saying you have to consider it. But that's okay. God allows us that choice to make. And he will not force you and he will not take your free will away from you. I think there's a second category of people who may be in here who may say, it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'd like to hear more about it. And if that's you, well, then I'll see you next week. Keep coming. Keep listening. Keep waiting to see and look what God has for you. But I also think there's that third category. And you're here this morning. And you're not ready to believe because of one message in one church on one morning. I think you're here and you're ready to believe because God has been working on your heart right up to this point. And it's been through other people who have shared it with you. It's been through other interactions in your life that have brought you to the point this morning where God is asking you, what will you do with this information? What will you do with my love for you? What will you do with this resurrection? Because the truth is God has done everything he can to make a way for you to himself. He's done everything short of force you, which he will not. But he has invited you. And he offers you through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. It's not difficult. It's not hard. He's done all the hard work. But if you will come, put your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Trust him to forgive you of sins that separate you from God. Trust him as your savior. And he invites you into that forever relationship with him. It may be that you've been looking for the answers to these questions. You just didn't think you'd find the answers in church. You thought maybe a philosophy book, maybe a class at school, maybe the next book on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. You've been searching for it. But sometimes we find the answers to the most important things. Sometimes we find things in unexpected places that we don't expect to see them. But we can be so busy that we might ignore them. Joshua uh, Bell uh, 
was a, is a violinist. And in, uh, recently, he was, not too long ago, he was playing in a, uh, this Washington, D.C. metro stop. And he went down there to play, and he opened up his case, and he put a few dollars in and to see if uh, he could, anyone would stop and put some more money in and notice. And the commuters walked by and by and large ignored him, as is often the case in situations like this. But what the commuters didn't realize is the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the most famous violinists in the world. The violin he was playing was a Stradivarius, which had been built in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari. This one was a combination of the finest spruce, maple, and willow and built to such a perfection that if you shaved off a millimeter of wood anywhere on that violin, it would unbalance the sound. The violin had been purchased for $3.5 million. And Joshua Bell, who normally plays in concert halls of Moscow, St. Petersburg, Vienna, Prague, London, Paris, and New York, People pay thousands of dollars to hear him. He literally makes thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a minute to play his violin. He played it in the D.C. Metro stop and hardly anyone stopped to listen. There were one or two children being brought by a parent or an adult and all the children, without exception, were intrigued. They wanted to stop and see the parent or guardian pull them away, drag them away. In the end, uh, 27 people put money in his violin case and he came to $31.21. And only one person recognized him. Here's the thing, no one expects to find a concert violinist in a subway stop. You're on your way to do something else. You're on your way to work, you're on your way to school, you're on your way, you're, you're busy. And maybe, maybe these big questions of life that you've thought about, you don't expect to find the answer in a rugged cross, in an empty cave, 2,000 years ago, in a small, occupied nation in the Middle East. And yet that's where God has provided those answers for you. And it's, you don't have to believe it, simply because I'm saying it. He said it's because he raised him from the dead that you can know that you are from God, that you are for God forever. And he has made that opportunity available for you. Maybe the cross and the resurrection is like that. It's beauty that's in an unexpected place. It's the master offering something beautiful to you, something you're looking for, but we're too busy with our lives to stop and look and listen because we can distract ourselves to death. We can stare at our phones and crush candy and do all the other things and binge on Netflix and miss what God has offered to us. I don't want you to miss that today. God offers you an invitation to forever life with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's what you're calling and that's your response today, that third response, there's a prayer on the back of your connect card that I invite you to pray with me this morning. It's right on the back, uh, underneath the sermon notes. It says, pray this prayer as you decide to follow Jesus. 
God has not made it difficult. He has done all the hard work. Question is, will you accept the invitation that he's offering? And so here's what the prayer says. Thank you, God, for loving me and for sending your son to die for my sins. I repent of my sins and receive Christ as my savior. And now as your child, I surrender my entire life to you. And if that's your desire and your prayer and your belief and you're saying this morning, I do believe and I do trust him and I want to follow him. There's no magic to that prayer. You can say your own words, but it's choosing to believe and to follow him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, Lord, we come before you and I thank you this morning for every person in this room. I thank you for Lord, open ears and open hearts. And I pray that we would genuinely and thoughtfully consider the message you have for us today. Father, I pray that you would remove the distractions, the voices that flood our head in a moment like this, and that we would recognize that one day it'll just be us and our creator. And in that day, will we have put our faith and our trust in you.